Welcome to another episode of Hearsay from Law Week, Colorado. I'm Julia Carty. The Senate is expected to end the impeachment trial of President Donald Trump tomorrow by voting on whether to remove him from office. His acquittal is all but certain, with likely no Republicans joining Democrats in voting to remove Trump and certainly not the 20 Republican defectors needed for a supermajority. Trump is just the third impeached U.S. president. In lawyer speak, that means we don't have a lot of case law to help define impeachable behavior. His lawyers and his supporters in Congress have argued impeachment requires the president to commit a crime. Some have admitted they believe Trump's handling of aid for Ukraine was wrong, but not worth impeaching him. I talked with Scott Barker, a lawyer and author of two books on impeachment, Impeachment, A Political Sword, and The Impeachment Quagmire. Scott is a litigator at Wheeler Trig O'Donnell and a self-taught impeachment expert. He started his study of this subject as a curious news consumer. When he started researching impeachment because he heard it talked about so much in the news after the 2016 election, he didn't think there was enough information out there about it that's understandable to a regular person, aka non-academics. Scott has researched how the Founding Fathers thought about the purpose and scope of impeachment power when they established it in the Constitution. He doesn't think historical records support the argument that impeachable conduct has to include a prosecutable crime. We recorded this conversation on January 31st, the day the Senate voted not to call witnesses in Trump's impeachment trial. Scott, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Thanks for uh, coming down to my office and talking to me. So I understand the focus of your main practice here at Wheeler Trig isn't in constitutional law, but you spent a lot of time studying the history of impeachment and the intent of that part of the Constitution. And, you know, I understand your interest in the topic came out of what you really felt was a lack of accurate information about impeachment that's understandable to an average person. So just tell us more about how your interest in this part of constitutional law really started. Yes, you're right. My practice doesn't really involve the Constitution much at all. I'm a commercial trial lawyer. Over the years, I have been kind of, I'll say, casually interested in the Constitution. I've got a copy that sits pretty close to my desk, and I look at it every once in a while just to kind of educate myself about what the Constitution might say about a given event. But during the 2016 presidential election, there was quite a bit of talk in the media about impeachment. And it seemed to me that it really was kind of shallow, and in some cases, based upon what I could remember about impeachment, not all that accurate. And I had recalled that Alexander Hamilton had written one of the Federalist Papers on, uh, on the topic, which is Federalist 65. So I, I kind of set upon a research project just to educate myself in greater depth about what the Constitution has to say about impeachment and how it's unfolded over time. And the more I got into it, the more I realized that most of what was written about impeachment was written by academics for other academics. And I just decided that I would kind of go on this journey of uh, education or revelation about impeachment, and I would share it with the average reader, you know, the general reader, I'll say. People that are interested in these kinds of things, but maybe haven't ever studied the Constitution in, in any great depth. And something that you mentioned once was that impeachment isn't something that you learned about in, in law school. I wanted to just clarify that really quickly. It really doesn't. It's not something that, that virtually any lawyer will, will encounter on a day-to-day -day basis. I would be surprised. There, now there may very well be 
a, a syllabus or two that's got impeachment in it, given what's happened here recently. But by and large, law schools don't teach that because it's not something that needs to be in the toolkit of a practicing lawyer. Sure, fair enough. In the past several months and weeks, the rarity of impeachment is a big reason for so much discussion about this fundamental question of what is impeachable conduct. And given that that President Trump is only the third president to actually be impeached, we don't have a lot of case laws, we might call it on the subject. But but the uniqueness of the Constitution's language describing impeachment also prompts that debate, right? I mean, the high crimes and misdemeanors concept specifically, which I know is just one part of the Constitution's language on impeachment, specifically is unique to the impeachment of political officials. It's it's not a concept that exists in our criminal or our civil code here in in the U.S. And so um, just just tell me a little bit about how we can use the the framing of the Constitution and, and kind of the history of impeachment to try and get some sense of how to define what is impeachable conduct. I think it's interesting that the, the people that we generally call the framers, and those are basically the people that attended the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia in the summer of 1787, many of them were lawyers. And since they were lawyers in an English system, they were very familiar with the English common law. Uh, and for that matter, parliamentary practice in England. And for hundreds of years in English common law, impeachment was developed as a technique or a weapon in the hands of parliament to restrain the conduct of the king. Of course, you, you couldn't impeach the king. The king was above the law. But over time, and like I say, when I say over time, we're talking English time, so it's a couple hundred years, this body of law relating to what's called impeachment and then high crimes and misdemeanors was used in the English system to basically unseat ministers that were conducting policies or doing things that parliament didn't like. And they developed this little term of legal art called high crimes and misdemeanors. And within that that catchphrase, if you will, resides criminal conduct, as we understand it today, what you might want to call an indictable crime. But it also included a whole host of activities that were not crimes, but breaches of the public trust and had an impact on the well-being of the government. And in fact, the term high crimes and misdemeanors, the high means an offense against the state. So as it came to the framers, as they were sitting in Philadelphia, they had a a draft of the Constitution that had been prepared by a committee that had impeachment in it, but it was only for treason or bribery. And then they had a very short but important debate about how they were going to expand that definition. And a couple of different terms were suggested. And then finally, they settled on high crimes and misdemeanors. And in fact, there was a famous impeachment trial going on at that time against uh, Lord Hastings, who was the viceroy of India, and the charges against him were were non-criminal, kind of breach of trust, breach of fiduciary duty type things. So that's how that got included in the Constitution. And then I think Alexander Hamilton, I think probably uh, in Federal 65 has the best kind of synopsis of what high crimes and misdemeanors means. 
The subjects of presidential impeachment are those offenses which proceed from the misconduct of public men and women, or in other words, from the abuse or violation of some public trust. They are of a nature which may with peculiar propriety be denominated political as they relate chiefly to injuries done immediately to society itself. So basically, a high crime and misdemeanor could be a crime, need not be. It has to be a significant breach of the public trust that affects either the conduct of the government or our constitutional system in some significant way. And I think having said that, you can see that it is a elastic, malleable, not definite term. And in a sense, the framers knew that, that this by the Constitution they hoped would last for a very long time. And over time, it would be up to Congress to put some flesh on the bones of what high crimes and misdemeanors mean. Now, since there have only been, well, we now have what you might want to call three and a half impeachments. You've got Andrew Johnson, Richard Nixon, who resigned before he was technically impeached. The Judiciary Committee had drafted three articles of impeachment against him. The House had not approved them yet, but they clearly were going to. And then Bill Clinton, and of course, now we've got President Donald J. Trump. There have been roughly a dozen or so impeachment of judges, but the issue of high crimes and misdemeanors don't factor, did not, have not factored into any of the impeachments and trials of judges who have been impeached. And, and I think what you say about kind of the, the particular addition of, of the word high and high crimes, I think that's really interesting because I haven't heard that talked a lot about in a lot of the discussions about how to define what's impeachable, but, but it is relevant to, to the discussions about arguing that, that Donald Trump should be impeached because he used his public office for, for personal gain. And but I now I want to talk a little bit about something that, that you've been mentioning um, about the understanding that impeachable conduct does not require an indictable crime to have been committed, because that's that's something that we have heard Donald Trump's defense lawyers talk quite a bit about in, in the the impeachment process these past couple of weeks that that no crime was committed in his dealings with Ukraine and his supposed freezing of aid to them um, until they, they open an investigation into to Joe Biden. And it's something that, that we've heard supporters in Congress also talk about. They say, well, there's no crime committed, so right. there's no reason to remove him from office. But, but I mean, let, let's talk about your, your research on that nuance. I mean, what are some of the opinions out there from non-politicians about whether a crime, something that would be prosecutable, has to be committed to consider impeachment? There are two kind of different kinds of scholars that study this issue. There are historians and then there are uh, law professors. But there, there is a very strong consensus, broadly held consensus within the academic community that it does not have to be an indictable crime in order to be impeachable. Now, one of the interesting things about President Trump's impeachment trial is, as it has unfolded, his lawyers have gone back and embraced again the notion that part of their defense is that in order to be removed from office, there has to be a, a crime committed by the president. He hasn't committed a crime, therefore you can't remove him from office. As I say, that's not, that, that's a very, uh, there aren't very many people that hold that view, but as, 
as you've already pointed out, it's not like we have a whole body of law on, on this issue to go, go with. And furthermore, ultimately, it's up to the House and the Senate to decide you know, what is impeachable. So there's a lot of discretion within, within both the House in deciding whether or not to impeach the president, and in the Senate, deciding whether or not he should be removed. And the, I mean, the flip side of what we've been talking about, about this kind of lack of, of body of law, or, or not, not having very much of it, I guess we should say, is that, that the way that, that the impeachment process of Donald Trump is being conducted is going to become part of this body of law of of how to define what is impeachable conduct. Well, you know, in, in that regard, Lamar Alexander, who is a senator from Tennessee, just last night, we're sitting here on the afternoon of uh, January 31st, um, he announced last night that he was going to vote not to have witnesses in the trial. And it's interesting, the, the, reason, the reason he did, he said, was because even if all the allegations that are, that are being made by the House managers are proved, and in fact, he said he thought they had been proved, but they did not amount to an impeachable offense. Now, okay, so what's the rationale for that? Well, we now know that the president's lawyers have said it can't, it's got to be a crime, so 50 years from now, you look back on the record here, and, and I think an argument could be made that the facts, he didn't commit a crime, technically, and therefore he's not subject to being impeached based upon the notion, the incorrect, the, the unconstitutional notion, that it has to be an indictable crime. So, which narrows, of course, the breadth or the ambit of, of Congress's ability to to control a, a president that has abused his or her power. Throughout the process, they have said they felt that the House rushed through the process, rushed through drafting and voting on articles of impeachment, and yet they have been very resistant to calling additional witnesses that could either corroborate, refute, or just otherwise bring their own evidence to the process. I mean, why do you think that, that President Trump's supporters have been so resistant to calling any additional witnesses now that the articles are in the Senate? I think one of the reasons, let's face it, is that let's just start with John Bolton, who, of course, is he's the primary person. Well, not the primary, but he has become the kind of the centerpiece of the Democrats' argument for why they need to have additional witnesses. And, of course, Bolton refused to testify uh, during the House impeachment investigation. Now he says he's willing to testify. Uh, I think the Republicans would prefer not to have what he has to say added to the record. Let's start right there. The other thing is that I think it, it for political purposes, it would draw. It, it's a, there's a good. It would draw out the trial, make it last longer. Secondly, I think it puts them in the position of uh, having to call witnesses of their own, and then that gets you into the whole arena of do, do you. Do you call Joe Biden? Do you call Hunter Biden? Do you call the whistleblower? Which I think is, would add to the circus atmosphere of this, of this trial and probably not redound very well uh, to the Republicans. So I think the bottom line is they just want to get it over with. And, and furthermore, and this comes back to 
Alexander, I mean, Lamar Alexander's statement, and that is that I think that the, it appears that uh, a lot of the Senate Republicans just don't think that what Donald Trump did, it, it may be wrong, but it's not something that, that you, as I think I heard one of the senators say today, you don't give him the death penalty, you don't remove him from office. It may have been inappropriate, but it's not bad enough to impeach him. I think that's a good segue into the last thing I want to touch on. I think one thing that really informed the, the framers of the Constitution and the way that they thought about impeachment and, and how the process should look was the fact that political parties didn't look the same way when this country was founded that they, they do now. The Republican Party, even if we're talking about Abraham Lincoln's presidency or, or the Republican Party of Abraham Lincoln's time, wasn't the same thing as it is now. And the president was not necessarily the, necessarily the leader of his political party. So, so can you just talk a little bit about maybe how, how that, that difference between a couple hundred years ago and, and now may have informed you know, differences in, in how the founders thought about impeachment versus how we now have come to think about it? I'd be glad to. The framers were aware of what they called factions, and occasionally they would refer to that as a party. But political parties as we under as they exist today really didn't begin to be to be developed until the 1830s. Martin Van Buren is is widely recognized amongst historians as being the kind of the driving force in creating what the, the kind of the model for what we now have as political parties. So the framers were not aware of a political system that would be dominated by political parties the way ours is now. They just didn't see that. I mean, they, like I say, they were aware of factions. They thought they were bad, and they, and they wanted to try to reduce the, the impact of factions. But as a result of that, the other thing that they didn't really comprehend and probably couldn't have comprehended necessarily is that the president would become the leader of his, his, or, his or her party. And because of that, that creates alliances between the executive branch and the Congress that work against impartiality in making decisions like whether or not a president should be removed. You know, because ultimately, just take our current situation with President Trump, the Republicans in Congress are so closely tied, their political fortunes are so closely tied to Donald Trump that it, it would be a miracle. I mean, I, won't, I don't know what it would take. Clearly, there's not enough yet on the table to, to make the break. So you can be darn well guaranteed that that's going to be a, a, a partisan political decision. Now, of course, to be, to be fair about it, the Republicans would say the same thing about the Democrats, that they're just in this for partisan politics. But the point is, is that the, the impeachment mechanism was put in the Constitution by the framers primarily as a tool of constitutional government that allowed the Congress to, in, to deal with and check abuses of power by the president. And they knew they were giving a lot of power to the president. And, and that, that, our ability to do that is really, I think, in my opinion, we're seeing it for now the, the third time in our history, where it's just virtually impossible for our politicians to set all that aside 
and make an impartial judgment about whether or not a president should be removed from office, apart from partisan politics. That wraps up this episode of Hearsay. For a bonus session of Scott and I discussing why the Founding Fathers gave impeachment power to the Senate instead of the courts, and how impeachment unfolded for Andrew Johnson and Richard Nixon, check out our Patreon page. You can find it by searching for Law Week Colorado. I'm Julia Cardi, and I'll see you all in March. Until next time.